Years from now, students of history will seriously discuss pandemic racism. When they do, I hope they research deeply and well remember that when the people of this nation needed government leaders the most, they failed them miserably. Let them say that when vulnerable populations desperately dependent upon the country's executive, legislative, and public health experts to rise to the occasion, that most of them did not possess the will and the moral capacity to truly lead. Some aggrandized themselves, neglected the citizens, and actively assisted in their demise. This is Dr. Catherine Bancoli Medina with the invention of racism. As you know, the goal of this podcast series is to share the subtle and the not so subtle nuances of racism from the past into the 21st century. And understanding and speaking the truth about racism is the first step toward combating and ultimately eliminating it. This episode explores some of the ideas surrounding the term pandemic racism. So I want to go back to January 2020. I remember hearing about a strange virus that was of concern to Asia. The scant news coverage focused on the province of Wuhan in the eastern part of China. The American public did not yet fully comprehend what was to come. The media emphasized that this was a new virus and that, whatever it was, it possibly came from a Chinese wet market. I didn't know what a wet market was, but I soon learned that they are akin, essentially, to a farmer's market, one that sells fresh fruits, and vegetables, seafood, and animal meat. They exist all over the world, but the reference was pointedly at wet markets in Asia that sold live, sometimes exotic animals for, flesh, for fresh slaughter and consumption. And that the practice of keeping an array of animals in close proximity to humans caused cross-contamination that allowed for the spread of the virus. Now, this idea is disputed, but the nation focused suspiciously on China. The worldwide pandemic began to make its way to the U.S. and other parts of the world. Even as we anticipated that the virus might mimic the 1918 Spanish influenza, we immediately recognized that there was no real comprehensive plan for a national coordinated response. However, the occupant, who knew that the pandemic was deadly, told the public not to worry, that it was totally under control and would soon miraculously disappear. It did not. Before the end of February 2020, he said there were only about 15 reported cases of COVID in the United States. And after countless ominous stories about the public health dangers of Chinese wet markets, 
there was the continued speculation that this was nothing more than a likely bad flu year. Yet, we seemed to know then that we were at the beginning of a gaslighting campaign, lying to the general public. I turned to my husband and said, we are on our own. Estamos solos. And by we, I meant everyone. Months later, the United States would be defined by chaos and confusion over how to contain a novel coronavirus that had infected more than 8 million and killed over 225,000 people. Black and Latino people would be disproportionately infected and killed by the virus, signaling an extraordinary racial aspect of this worldwide public health crisis. This is the beginning of what pandemic racism looks like. Pandemic racism has two interconnected areas. First, pandemic racism is expressed through systemic prejudice in medical health care and how this promoted disproportionate COVID-19 infection and mortality rates among black and brown people. Second, pandemic racism is how racial discrimination operates during a global health crisis, including how it harms and or hinders the lives of black and other people of color through acts of omission and commission. So we'll begin with the first part, that pandemic racism is articulated through systemic prejudice in medical health care and significantly reflected in the disproportionate infection and mortality impact COVID-19 has on black and brown people. Uh, so a few points here will include myths about COVID-19, a note about hospitals, the effect on children, public record keeping and response, and the health outcomes on the prison population. For me, this discussion begins with some of the racial myths surrounding COVID-19. One of the first racial myths was the strange idea that black people were by some means immune to COVID-19. Some link this myth to the idea that melanin offered a special protection to black people. Africans were also thought to be immune to the coronavirus because of their exposure in malaria endemic countries. And then there were the false notions that black antibodies were more powerful than the antibodies produced by white people. These kinds of fictions were circulated on social media in the first weeks of the pandemic. This information would prove to be demonstratively wrong. In early April 2020, we discovered that African Americans were contracting and dying from the coronavirus at a rate two to three times higher than whites and exceedingly disproportionate 
to the black population as a whole. Due to systemic racism in healthcare, African Americans have comorbidities, two or more pre-existing medical conditions or diseases, which make them much more susceptible to the coronavirus. However, by early summer, another myth was perpetrated by an Ohio State Senator who was also a physician. And rather than addressing the topic of whether racism was a public health issue, this senator suggested that black people contracted, spread, and died from the coronavirus because they didn't wash their hands properly, or they didn't wear masks, or they didn't practice social distancing guidelines. This senator was fired from his emergency room staff position for these comments. Historically, black patients tend to receive poor medical care, even if they have health insurance. Blacks tend to distress medical professionals especially when they pick up on the subtle and not so subtle racist cues from doctors and nurses uh, who might suggest that blacks endure pain better than whites or that black people conflate the health conditions that they report. At the onset of the pandemic, there were reports from sick black people who had been turned away from hospitals and medical centers because of the initial failures in supplying test kits. They were refused testing and some of them died. The families of other patients say that their loved ones who had been admitted to the hospital due to the virus were sent home to die. Add to this, the black medical professionals, especially black nurses, who complained bitterly about having to work long hours and with limited or no PPE or having to reuse PPE. They were at a higher risk of exposing themselves and their families to the coronavirus. And many healthcare workers, of course, unfortunately, tragically, lost their lives. Yet, because of supply shortages and other factors, hospitals routinely refused to provide them with sufficient N95 masks and other protective gear. More than 1,300 frontline healthcare workers have died from the coronavirus, though this number may be much higher. Black healthcare workers represent 27% of this number. Though so much is still unknown about this coronavirus, it is believed that children are less susceptible to the disease. And some of those who do contract the disease are asymptomatic. However, even if this were true, infants are highly susceptible to the virus. While the occupant has said that children are virtually immune to the coronavirus, we would find out months later that crisis proportions of black and brown children are subject to infection transmission, and mortality. The CDC knew months ago that Latino children went to the hospital eight times more than white children 
and that black children were hospitalized five times more than white children. These are crisis proportions. Black children may not have reliable access to health care because of the costs involved and may not be able to quarantine or isolate from others. Black children are more likely to contract a rare, severe inflammatory condition associated with contracting COVID-19. And black and brown children represent 75% of all cases associated with this condition. And this condition um, makes them suffer from stomach pain, intestinal disorders, as well as heart swelling. Now add to this two notable epidemiological records and response failures of federal and local government and the coronavirus. First, government agencies failed to keep and publicly report on the numbers of African Americans who were infected and died. Second, state and federal agencies did not effectively respond to the threat of the pandemic and its inordinate impact on a specific sector of the population, black and brown people, as a key feature of the public health crisis. But pandemic racism also includes the struggle for black people to receive routine and critical medical care because now hospitals and medical centers are overwhelmed with severe COVID-19 patients. And so this also includes the fact that the pandemic has left millions of children around the world at risk because they are off schedule for routine immunizations. COVID-19 has had an excessive impact on the prison population, which due to historic mass incarceration contains larger numbers of black and brown people, including older at risk inmates. These facilities are massive super spreader environments. They have some of the highest outbreaks of the coronavirus in the nation, five times higher. The architecture of prisons and jails is just not conducive to fighting a pandemic. This is because prisons are often overcrowded. They can't quarantine or practice social distancing guidelines. Some prisoners report limited access to soap and water for routine hand washing. Carceral personnel take the virus inside and out of the prisons. They don't have access to testing commensurate with the um, outbreak risk and figures. Prison workers and the incarcerated say that they do not have adequate PPE. In addition, there is the exploitation of prison laborers. Inmates have been tasked to make masks, hand sanitizers, and soaps, all COVID-19 prevention items that they are not allowed to use for their own virus hygiene. And finally, we understand that the medical sterilization of black and brown females in detention facilities, and I'm, I am referencing here the allegations uh, against ICE as yet another example of the confluence 
of racism and the circumstances surrounding COVID-19. So this is part one of Pandemic Racism. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Support for independent podcasts like The Invention of Racism is critical at this moment. In the national and global effort to dismantle racism and to establish human equality, we need as many thoughtful and courageous voices as possible. If you believe in and appreciate this anti-racism podcast, continue to download and support us. I also encourage you to use your own media platform to honestly analyze, examine, and ultimately to put an end to racism. I know you're listening to this podcast, so you already know. Discourse on racism is not for the faint of heart. I hope that you will continue to join me as I present key topics in the invention of racism.